Thank you for joining us wherever you are. This podcast episode is brought to you by the Old Ways Actual Play Team. This actual play uses the 7th edition Call of Cthulhu tabletop role-playing game, Rules by Kaelium. This actual play is performed by adults and in an adult setting. While we try hard to stick to reasonable languages for all ages, listeners should know that this is a podcast that may include mature themes. All content, including names, places, events, companies, and etc., may bear resemblance to persons living or dead, is strictly coincidental. My name is Michael Diamond, and for tonight's game, I will be your keeper. I'm your keeper, Keeper Michael, although I'm in a bit of a less than prepared state here. There's no game. There won't be any dice during this. This is kind of a special Black Friday episode that we're doing for our listeners. Uh, I have Tiffany here with me. Tiffany plays... Maeve O'Shea. Uh, and Maeve is quite the interesting character. And what we're going to try to do in this little excerpt is kind of educate our listeners as to who they are and a little bit more about them. So talk to me about Maeve's past. Uh, we know a little bit already on the current recordings that she's lost her mother to an asylum. Her mother was re- was moved in the recent episode, or we found out she was moved in the recent episodes from the uh, one of the hospitals inside Illinois in Peoria all the way to Arkham. So what effect do you think that had on her growing up? Um, well, for the most part, uh, Maeve remembers her mother and father being together. Mm-hmm. Um, she knows that something happened um, and her mother was hospitalized. She was always under the impression that she was committed when her father left because of her breakdown. She did right. not know, which we discovered in one of our um, one of our episodes that she had discovered that her mother was getting help or was in and out of an asylum before that. Yeah. Which they kept from her as a younger girl. Yeah. She's only 22. And that is something to think about, too, uh, with the situation with her household being in flux. That probably, that probably gave her less touchstones to have at home because children often anchor to their parents at young ages. She's only 22, and she went. On, she lost her father, Neil, at 15. So all this stuff comes for Maeve uh, probably a few years before that. So she's probably, what, 11, 12 maybe when, 13 maybe when things start to kind of get a little tough for her? Correct. It's a pretty formative age, especially even in the 1920s, it's still a formative age. Um, and, and as we heard on that, that current crop of episodes, Maeve's lo- Maeve lost her father. Um, to d- How much does a character understand about why Neil went away? Um, she just remembers um, that her mother begged him not to go and that he was supposed to go on work, you know, go for a work um, well, work is relative. He was supposed to go um, for to investigate something for the Order of the Golden Dawn. He never returned. Now, she, is is it true that Neil was a dentist? He was. Okay, so he was a dentist that got interested in uh, the the occult. Yes, and then that kind of enjoyment of lost and forbidden knowledge and strange arcane texts kind of spills over into other parts of his life so much so that he eventually leaves the house because of it 
Yeah. Um, what you the parallel that uh, I have made with the two is that as much as you see that Maeve jumps headlong into these occult dealings or occult like uh, things where she can research and everything like that. Um, he also did the same. Mm-hmm. Even though he was a dentist, it was a mundane job, doing the same thing, you know, seeing the same people for the same issues. And, you know, since dentistry wasn't what it is now, you're pretty much doing a bunch of extractions and, you <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. making, you know, porcelain teeth, you know. Right. Um, and so he, I'm assume. I mean... From the way I would picture her childhood is he got bored and decided to look into other things. Mm. Yeah, it becomes very common later in the Dust Bowl era uh, in the late, you know, late, late 20s and early 30s when everything crashes in the economy. Very common, actually, for men of the house to leave and go look for work. Very common. And then essentially... Uh, send money back when they can, if they did at all. Uh, And so this is kind of a bit of a a drop in the bucket in that same bucket where uh, he decides to leave because something else has drawn him away. Do you think that his dedication to the occult uh, rubbed off on her in that way where she decided to follow his tracks uh, as a method of finding him or or as as a inspiration for what she could be doing with her life? Well, um, I think a lot of it is she always had those books around her at a young age. Mm -hmm. Um, So she's always been able to look at it. But I think she really went into it when she discovered his notes and uh, he has these particular books that she carries around with her that, um, you know, and basically, yeah, piecing together a potential trail of where he went. She's always searching for him in the back of her mind. It's almost like um, an obsession that she Mm -hmm. is always looking for him, always trying to find a trail, trying to find new notes, always combing through the books, Mm -hmm. you know. Okay, so to key in on that, talk to me about what May fears when it comes to finding Neil. Is it finding that he... Is he died at some point in the interim between? Is it finding out that he left simply because of his love for the occult and and that was enough to draw him away from his family? Uh, fear that her maybe her her abandonment issues, if 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 you feel like she's got those, are are founded in actual fact that 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 there is some truth to them. What's what she fear about finding Neil? Well, for a long time, it was that, um, yes, that he got so obsessed with the occult that he decided to leave his family. Um, Now, with this past episode, I think she is afraid of finding out who he's become for him to leave again. Because the note that she found with her mother's belongings in the last episode intimated that he was going to fix her mother. Right. So, um, so if he's on some mission, you know, I, I don't think it's even crossed her mind that he could potentially not be alive <laughs> because she doesn't want to think like that. But sure. she's also afraid that he's going to just keep getting further away from her the closer she gets. Right, right. Talk to me about what Maeve does when she's not plumbing the depths of uh, of uh, the stockyards or 
or uh, searching the shelves for you know random arcane bits. What do you, what do the listeners not know about her? Mainly because of our recording history and and recording after we started the game uh, up after a few episodes, but also because it really hasn't come to bear just yet uh, recently again. Um, she's actually um, a singer. She prefers to perform in a few speakeasies that mm. she uh, has connections with. Sure. Um, it's mostly a means to an end, basically to pay her bills and to allow her to do things like, oh, I don't know, take a whole week and, <laughs> you know, figure out what's going on. It does give you a flexible schedule, especially in the era we're playing in. Uh, we're talking about her having probably some uh, in financial influence from what her father left her and then also making her own uh, money gives her a bit of freedom. She doesn't have to be trapped in a specific uh, job or uh, in a, as working in a household. Uh, she doesn't have a significant other. Um, she actually doesn't make uh, friends very easily. Um, if you notice, there are a few people in our group that she has, you know either clung too tightly to or is just trying to step away from because of her abandonment issues. She doesn't make friends and she doesn't keep people close. She prefers just to be by herself because they're going to leave anyways. Okay. So you get the, you have the baked in sense that you don't get, she doesn't get close to people because uh, mostly because she's trying to protect herself. Yes. Right. Protect herself. So our listeners may have also heard that uh, Maeve is a member of the Order of the Golden Dawn, right? So for, for historians and historical notes out there, um, by the time that we're playing the game in the early 20s, there are actually seg- several fragments of the Order itself. Uh, it gets started up in uh, sometime in the 1800s, mid to late 1800s, and then fragments eventually in the because of differences within the actual historical order itself. How much does Maeve know about what the order is about and what her father's role in it was? Um, She doesn't actually know very much about it at all. Uh, She basically stumbled into it almost by finding her father's contacts Mm. and speaking to them. Right. And then she eventually became a part of the order but i wouldn't say i mean she's kind of like you know she goes to the monthly meetings and they're almost a means to an end as well because they have resources for her to help find her father and people that knew her father so yeah it's another connection not that she doesn't believe in what they do but i don't think she's invested enough time to figure out exactly what they are doing and with the arcane text that she's actually gotten the, the actual real mythos knowledge that she's managed to kind of just barely put her fingertips on. How do you think that role will change when she begins to look back at the occult texts that she's gotten, the more mundane stuff that she's, she's received to this point? Uh, do you think that she'll be able to differentiate between uh, the stuff that has seemingly has real value and stuff that seems more maybe a bit more mundane. Yeah, I think she'll be able to tell either by who it's written by, how it's written, what's real and what's not. I think at 
you know, before everything happened, um, I think it was more, uh, she looked at it as almost like um, science theory. It's all theories. It's all theoretical. You know, this could do this. This could do that. You know, there are beliefs in this. There are beliefs in that. But now that she's, like, come face to face with actual things that are spoken about in these books and, you know, in some of these texts, yeah, I think some of the stuff she may just end up, like getting rid of or putting under a desk somewhere because she's going to say it's children's stories. Right. Re- merely reference material at, at best. Um, okay, so final question. In the coming episodes, what do you think Maeve is going to concentrate on over the next, say, six months to a year? What will be her area of study? Are the things that she's been, or you, the, the, the player, have been thinking well, I'd really like her to develop this skill or maybe I'd like to learn this thing. What are you looking forward to? Um, Well, I think for the most part, um, she's probably, as much as she can afford to, going to, I mean, just tumble headlong into all of the occult things. And because now she's got... You know, she's got her mother to go visit. Right. And, and she's going to try and figure out what's going on with her mother. If whatever um, her mother's speaking about is real. Sure. Or if it's in her mind. Because, I mean, we've seen both with Grace Holden. And then, you yep. know, that was very much real. But then, you know, there are people that do see things that are not real. Yeah, sure, sure. There is there's a, a point where you do have to reckon with the idea that a person who's been committed to an asylum is telling you they see things. Well, well of course they are. Why, why wouldn't they? So that was going to be an interesting hook for you to kind of get into and see if there's any meat on that bone at all. Um, so, yeah, sounds great. Okay, that's that's all I've got for, for you. Uh, I appreciate you coming in and giving me your time, and then we will look forward to the episodes to come. Okay, and so I have with me now uh, Heather. She is the uh, player behind Stasi. Yes. Uh, Hello. And we're going to talk a little bit about who Stasi is and then kind of get you more, you the listener, more backstory on uh, maybe things you don't know about her. So th- thanks for taking the time out today. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Uh, Stasi is pretty blunt. Uh, and I think that <laughs> yes. it's something our listeners enjoy. Um, what about her character development in, in the back in the backstory that you wrote for me? What brought that out? What what brought that very direct, cutting voice to that character? Well, without giving too much away, right? Because obviously, I believe our listeners would probably want to hear the mystery of her background unfold. Um, Really, for Stasi, it kind of falls into two categories. One is coming from her background, and dear listeners, you will discover bits and pieces about this, what kind of, she had to harden herself, had to really grow, you know, a backbone of steel sure. to get through what she went through uh, and let what led her to where she is now. And allows her to continue to lead the type of life that she does leave, lead the bit bohemian and a few of the secrets that have been alluded to mm-hmm. over the last several game sessions about uh, her roommate uh, right. and a few other things. 
Uh, but it even goes back farther than that to her parentage, to her family, especially to her mother. Right. And again, I'm not going to give anything away. No, 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 of course not. <laughs> and I, and, I, and I, want, I think uh, everybody out there would, would rather see uh, in that theater of the mind, they would rather hear it play out at the table. Uh, so with all of the interviews that we're doing for you, the listener, to kind of catch up with what has been going on, maybe things that you missed in the the first few sessions that weren't recording is to give you a better idea of who the, these characters are. And and it's been intimated, especially on that same thread with Stasi's past, yes. uh, that she keeps something uh, locked away. Uh, maybe several somethings locked away. Mm-hmm. Can you give us any sort of um, background on that or, or maybe what Stasi has, what frame of mind she's placed herself in? To maybe protect her own psyche from what's happened? She puts on a good front. That's probably the best way. She knows how to wear the masks and put forth the illusion uh, of confidence and together, you know, all being all together and truly enjoying life. It's mm-hmm. not that she doesn't, but it belies a darkness Uh, And lots of, shall we say, psychological, maybe emotional, maybe other types of wounds uh, that have, you know, from her past leading up to when she came to Chicago, found herself in in the city. Right. And I I think it's evident in your character and in a couple of other characters that are at the table, too, uh, that there are wounds that have been inflicted on them that before this, the game even started, that they were using um, that method of disguise to cope uh, as best they could. And I think what hopefully what is showing through in, in the plays of the session is that none of the none of the characters are perfect people by any means. In fact, I think I think you could easily say that every character that is around the table has is broken. We are all in our own way broken inside sure. or have been broken probably multiple times. And what we appear to be is just the first couple of layers yeah. of the onion. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You mentioned masks earlier, and that's not, a, um, that's not a name drop on anything that might be coming in the future per se. But I think it's true that we're going to get into as the, the plots develop within the story, we're going to get into the idea that there are so many threads that connect the characters, not only just to each other, but threads that connect them to their own backstory that Mm -hmm. unbeknownst to them are going to come unraveling into their present day and they're going to have to deal with. And I think that'll be a a whole lot of fun uh, for us to go through. And as a player, it's wonderful when you feel comfortable and confident enough with the storyteller the gm the however whatever Keeper. title sure whatever yeah. whatever whatever title you want to whatever get title in whatever game when you have a set of players that feels comfortable enough to go okay i'm going to give you all this ammunition and right. all this this good stuff to play with mm-hmm. which i think all of us have been able to do and in some ways as, as maybe masochistic of us <laughs> masochistic of it um, of us as it is that we are looking forward to seeing how you yeah. bring that 
to yeah, us. I, I think throw it back in our faces. I think as a, <laughs> I I know storyteller and 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 GM and keeper and stuff like that. Sometimes they're synonymous with each other. Specifically, as far as the Cthulhu universe is concerned, generally a keeper is the keeper of mystical and arcane lore, all the secrets and whatnot. Um, a storyteller is a great uh, way to describe it, but I prefer, I think I prefer keeper in this idea because I don't believe that any one person controls the telling of the story because the dynamic cast that we have at the table uh, really propels the story in different directions all over the place. And I don't want one single person to say, I'm the person in charge of the story and you're going to do what I say. Uh, I I dislike games like that heavily. And yes. the... <clears throat> The backstory stuff is ammunition for me, but the idea is is also it's a kind of a crafted present. I have I have five people at the table that have all crafted me a specific present and says, here, open it. There's all sorts of wondrous things inside. And then we get to go on the journey of dealing with it or for that matter, not dealing with it. So it could be something that is presented to the characters directly and they could put both hands up and say, I am not dealing with this in character. I'm not going to deal with this. We're, we have to do something else. I can't deal with it right now. And I want those natural human reactions because they make up so much of what's good about a game, yeah. right? And, uh, and and as a keeper, and that's it really is a great title to use with this type of genre, with this type this type of, of dy- game dynamic, mm-hmm. because we really, as players, we look to you to keep not just the story going, not just the mythos, you know, the knowledge of the mythos sure. to, you know, so that it, we can, we can play in it, but we are entrusting you. Yeah. And you, we trust that you will keep this, not just the secrets, but that you will able, that you will utilize those gifts that we give you in such a way for our benefit. Yeah. And I think that comes down to, uh, analyzation of the of what you've been given, and then making sure you de- it develops into the story and into the writing of the process. Uh, and then speaking of writing process, the character Stasi is a writer herself. Yes. And so I guess I want I'd like you to touch on why you saw her as a writer, and then uh, maybe any uh, points of inspiration you took from people in that time period. I made st- I chose for Stasi to be a writer. Um, for several reasons. Uh, primarily, I felt that having a very vocal member of the team, someone who is highly inquisitive, someone who is you know, not afraid to speak her mind, uh, would be an asset to the group. Also, because of the history, uh, her history, her her background, her mm-hmm. where she's come from, it m- kind of it, it, it formed. It, it made sense. I tend to write history and background and develop that, and then I take my cues on where that character just seems to lead. And for her to want to be the voice of those who have not, uh, who don't have a voice, sure, those who are kept to the shadows, those who are pushed aside, um, those who are dismissed. Right. And and to give, to be able to put her into 
these situations where it makes sense that she's there mm. to be a reporter, whether she's writing as a columnist, uh, which was very specific in its decision, um, or as an investigative journalist, because uh, that's primarily where she wants to be. She wants to be in the thick of things. But based on the history, the time period that we're talking about, women were basically, if they were a writer uh, for a publication, for the media, mm-hmm. they were relegated to these, you know, housewife or happy, yeah. happy, you know, go lucky girl, uh, you know, Girl Friday columnist. Sure. So they net they were not allowed to get into, you know, jump into the political scenes, jump into, you know, what was going on overseas in Europe after World you know, with World War One mm. and whatnot, and all of these highly charged situations. So the choice of having her be a columnist for the early publications that were centered in Chicago, like the American magazine. Right. Um and the Chicago Tribune before it was technically the Chicago yeah, Tribune. Yeah, uh, you know, this this was yeah, this was her only way to get her foot in the door at all, and to be able to kind of work her way in here and there where she could. Sure, and I think one of the great things about what uh, Chaosium's product, Call of Cthulhu, has done is it allows us to riff on that a little bit and it allows us to to push the boundaries back a little bit and say, hey, listen, there were a, a swell of wonderful female journalists, female writers mm-hmm. that were barely allowed to do any, what we would say, common man journalism, common man field research and work because they were constantly kept under the thumb or pushed aside because other male colleagues always came first, came second, came third. And... I think what's great about that is that we can show and have that as part of our story. We can show that it happened uh, and that we're, we have a character at the table. It's just simply not going to take it. Uh, And I like, I like that about her. I like that. She, she reminds me of a lot of um, movie stars of the forties and the fifties, the, um, the leading ladies that absolutely would not take it from anybody. And I, I like that because it's a flip of what is normally present at the time, whereas um, women in many in many roles, especially in American roles, were subservient to men constantly. Yes, uh, and I like the fact that we're going to flip that completely on its head in the twenties. And yeah, it might mean that Stasi meets some people, she encounters some people, NPCs, etc. Maybe even other player characters, especially maybe uh, Mister Forsyth, who are <laughs> used to a more type. You know, Demure, right? A quiet, uh, homebody type, right? And yes. he's gonna, and you and him might have friction over that because you're a very headstrong woman who's simply yeah. not gonna take no for an answer unless it's the answer she's looking for. Uh, and I think that's great because tension and conflict breeds drama and story, and we want all those things. Right. Uh, so after the stockyards, which is now past us, the, the events of the stockyard are now, are now done. Yes. For the most part. Yes. <clears throat> now they're behind us. The what terror at the stockyards. Mm. What lingering fears do you think Stasi has? What what still rattles around inside her brain about what went on? I think the the choice that I made with her actions towards the end to be proactive helps at least in part to offset the horror that she was confronted with. As as a player, I 
will fully admit I got very lucky in terms of I was either away from the times when certain bits of evidence came out where that chipped away at this everyone else's uh, that chipped away at everyone, that, happens. <laughs> that chipped away at everyone's sanity uh, I only had to confront it once yeah and but I think it's it's it sticks with her I mean you you can't face a horror along those lines both of a shall we say, mythos-related, as well as human. Oh, yeah. Because the horror was not just confined to the creature, the beasts, the the the, the, the elder whatever it right. was that came out from, from the depths. It really, the true horror really showed itself primarily through the humans. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what that scenario, yeah. as written, is meant to do. Uh, that scenario, as I wrote it, the idea behind it was to show uh, the rawness of humanity as it existed in that era at that location. Uh, a bit of backstory, if if anybody who's listening to the podcast is interested, I would highly recommend you Google search The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. The Jungle is a book uh, that's set in the early 1900s, and it actually is a, it's a work of fiction but it talks about a, a family, a Lithuanian family that immigrates to the United States and comes to work in Chicago at the stockyards. And it shows because of the policies at the stockyards, um, family get family members get sick. Um, people are unfortunately not paid nearly what they're worth. Mm-hmm. And, and families deteriorate uh, at a rapid rate when they work in the meatpacking industry. Now, reforms get made eventually, but they take decades to take hold and and the the companies that work the stockyards did a ton of union busting they would take workers who came up african-american workers who came up with the southern migration that came up north when the economy tanked in the south and they came up north they would pay those workers Mm -hmm. money to beat striking workers up and then those same workers who had been paid by the meatpacking companies to break to to be strike breakers would get jobs right alongside the men that they were beating not but weeks ago, and it's just the 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 the, the totality of the experience, the human experience back then is something that the that isn't shouldn't be lost on people with that with that scenario, the human element truly. I mean, the the mythos creature aside, the human element truly is the most frightening, and it yes, should be. Absolutely. And with Stasi, again, trying not to give anything away, but she has faced in her past the horror that comes from within the human yeah. being. Um, she's had that. She has faced that. So for her, it's less... There is still fear of this unknown, you know, supernatural, mm-hmm. you know, otherworldly horrors that are that are have appeared and, and are going through. But it also, she also, it strikes a chord in her, right? Where the true horror that comes from within man, and I, I mean, man is not like it's male, true. but man right. is humans. Humans. Um, that comes from man 
and it has reverberated though we're only we haven't really seen a lot of it but it reverberates against and maybe opens a few internal thoughts you know wounds things boxes she has put aside uh in her mind so it kind of it's rattled her in a lot of ways and i think that's about to start coming out okay so final question is this in the next six months to a year Mm -hmm. what would you like what do you think stasi would like to accomplish for herself uh and uh, it's kind of a two-parter and what would heather like to see Stasi accomplish if there's any specific skill goals or something like that or or character movement what would you like to do Stasi I think now that she's had in her own way a taste a real taste of what may be out there and being in the thick of things for all of the uh, negative you know, emotional and psychological state of things has, this is almost like fuel into the fire. She has now been a part of something huge, even though it's not reported in the news, but she has had that taste of being, it's almost like, you know, a, a war reporter who has always wanted to get to the front line to be able to do the job that they wanted to do. Right. And now she's had a taste of that. She's going to want more. Okay. And so for her, as terrifying and as you know, crazy as it sounds, now she wants she wants her next hit. So she may be going and looking for it or stirring up trouble just to see what she can get at. Right. So you're almost trying to um, you're almost trying to to ride the wave uh, again. Find the wave. Find that rush. Find the uh, the unexplainable thing to be in the thick of it again, and that might, yeah, that might cause her to make some less than stellar choices, right? Which, which is, which, by the way, is wonderful for me. Uh, and Ashley is a player for me too. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, it, it it feeds it feeds the that need as a player as well. Um, but as a player, there were some choices I made when I specifically put her together, and I'm kind of looking back at it because when you've never played the system before and you've never you know this is a new character this is a new sure game it's a new dynamic right. you you kind of put things into place where you think you need it and later on you realize that it may not really work um, some of the choices I made like she does speak we were talking earlier she speaks several languages right. but she speaks a little bits of the language and unfortunately where the dice rolls need to be to be able to utilize that in any respect is sure. not going to work yeah, really for, for, well. For basic fluency uh, in, in the call clue system, you you're probably need to be around 50%. Yeah. Now, if... Uh, and there's things that she should be higher on because she should have those abilities and again, those... So we're gonna. I'm gonna have to make some choices. I may have to go. Yeah, I, I think that we'll get a chance to to, to talk about <laughs> kind of as the clock moves forward. You'll get a, a bit of bulk time. Every character will get a bit of bulk time with uh, the ability to tell me, okay, tell me what you're doing. This is the time frame that we're gonna cycle ahead. Tell me what you're doing, and then based on those, we'll make some choices as far as what the characters learn or if they learn anything at all. Yeah. So uh, that's all I've got for you. So I appreciate you showing up. Yeah, thank you. We'll talk soon.
Bye, everybody. Okay. Well, for my third in a set of player interviews, I welcome to the table uh, Jake, who is the player behind uh, Jack Doyle, private investigator. And uh, what what else would you consider Doyle's uh, tertiary jobs nowadays? Well, um, lock picker. Lock picker seems to be a big one. Right. Um, <laughs> gunman. <laughs> Gun, yeah, no, you do seem to have a, a flair for use of, of firearms, which unfortunately has been something that the group has had to deal with. Right. Uh, so what we're doing in this set of interviews is just trying to get to know the characters, a bit of their backstory, because we feel like maybe the listing audience doesn't really know enough about them. Um, a couple of the sessions before we began recording uh, were played without the the virtue of uh, any history, so it's kind of get an idea of who Doyle is. So give me a bit on who Doyle is, uh, what kind of household he grew up in, maybe family and that sort of thing. All right. Well, Doyle grew up in a uh, South Chicago um, Irish Catholic family. Okay. His father was a police officer. You know, Irish mother, mm-hmm. half a dozen younger siblings. Probably a large family. Yes, very large family. Sure. Um, when he got of age, he became a cop himself okay. and then left the force to go fight in World War One. Right. Now, he comes back from World War One. Uh, during the war, did he have anything that you, the player, would consider traumatic happen to him? Other than, of course, being in a war. Uh, was he a frontline soldier? Do you, know, have, do you have any idea yeah, maybe where yeah. he would have um, served? What yeah, he was, he was in the 33rd Infantry Division, which was an Illinois division during the war. <laughs> okay. Um, he fought in the Battle of Argonne Forest, mm-hmm. which was considered the um, biggest battle of the U.S. forces fought in. Okay. That's in France? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was during uh, the Battle of the Somme. Okay. 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 And then he comes back stateside and decides to do what? Well, he was originally going to come back and join the force again, but it just wasn't a match for him anymore. So he became a private investigator. He he, uh, hooked up with another private investigator and they, Mm -hmm. you know, worked as partners, a team. So that's Michael DeGracie. Yeah, you're a former partner, and I say former because uh, I found him dead. You did. Uh, so Michael DeGracie is dead. This was this was a while ago, though, right? This yeah. wasn't immediate in our story. This is part of the backstory. So yeah, it was like a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago, you find him dead of uh, stabbing, multiple stab wounds. Okay, so so you, it's a pretty traumatic event finding uh, finding your partner stabbed. I, did you find him in the office? Did you yes, find him? Found him in the office. Now, is that the office you continue to yes, use? Yes, it is continue it is the same office. All sorts of fun possibilities there. <laughs> okay, so do we know why the force wasn't a fit when he came back? Do you, do you have any idea why Doyle maybe said, "Listen, it's not for me. I can't do it?" Well, um I think it was after coming back after uh Spain time in battle like that, I, I he just wasn't able to fit into regular society. Like, okay, yeah. Know. So, do you think maybe he suffered from shell shock, some sort of uh, post traumatic yeah, stress, I, I, as they would call I, it? I think, yeah, I think that was a very likely situation. Okay. Okay. What about any uh, the day to day stuff with his family? Is he still interact with them? Is he still around them on the weekends? Um, church. Yeah, he goes he goes to church with them every Sunday. They mm-hmm. have a big uh, Sunday dinner with his siblings, his mother. Uh, Not last Sunday though, because in our timeline he was a little busy. Right. Yeah. Uh, and and speaking of, 
when you think about what Doyle's experienced in the past couple of weeks, at least as far as where our episodes are at now, what do you think his takeaway is going to be from his time in the stockyards? Um, I think it's really uh, had an impact on him, a, a severe impact. Uh, one, he's had his entire foundation of what he believes to be true and... Um, yeah, consensual reality has been yeah, tipped on its head a little yeah, bit. rocked. He's been pretty rocked on that. Yeah. And then, of course, there was the execution of uh, Mr. Swift. Yep. Which is not going to be helpful for him at all mentally. I think he's... He's going to try to bury it under the whole layers of everything else he's done in his life. Sure. Yeah, he's, he's going to probably compartmentalize it as, uh, as he would do any sort of killing that he did right. in the war. Right. He would say it had to be done. Probably put some sort of, um, um, you know, a, a chivalrous veneer on it that, it that, you know, he was the person that had to do the, to right the wrong. Um, but in reality... The one that he lives in, after he leaves the yards and as the days kind of tick along, he's going to have to come at some point, try to either either come to grips with what he did or push it completely away, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, I think he's going to try to push it away. I mean, okay. he seems like the kind of person who doesn't um, <laughs> delve deep into his own emotions. Now, as you said before in our episodes, um, he's a hard-drinking, hard-smoking, hard-living sort of person. And generally speaking, at least in in my personal experience, folks who are like that bottle things up until they mm-hmm. they cannot bottle them up anymore. Right. And then there is a violent explosion, usually of emotion or whatever else. Uh, so that's uh, that'll be interesting to see how he uh, how he deals or how long he can deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he already drinks most nights just to sleep. <laughs> yeah. No. That's a, and. And the thing is, is uh, the era that we play in, even during Prohibition, it's still very common. Oh, yeah. Very common. Uh, so uh, it's nice to see that the character is tapped into the reality. And uh, cool that you know the uh, infantry he served with in World War One and that sort of thing. It gives him a little bit of a, of a foundational experience for people who are listening. They can go back and look up the battle and they can look mm-hmm. at what uh, what infantry units were around from, from Illinois. So... Moving forward, if you had to surmise what he's going to be up to for the next six months, barring the current threads of the story, uh, what do you think his plans are? What's what's his plan? Is he going to go back and, and try to deal with the situation as far as this, the missing woman is concerned? Oh, yeah. He's going to do the best he can to wrap that up. It's okay. going to be a touchy situation, but he's going to do his best. <laughs> yeah, no, you have quite the situation on your hand for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, and then beyond that, if there is a beyond that, what what's his? Is it back to the daily grind of being a PI? Or well, I mean, that's he kind of his entire life was kind of a day by day situation where he worked a case. When the case was over, he found another case and worked that. Sure. He just moved on, just kind of surviving. So in a way, that's going to continue to happen. Though he may start looking at the world a little differently now. Because he knows that there are things slightly under the surface. Yeah. Well, quite literally, in fact. Um, yeah. <laughs> that, that he's one of the very few people in Chicago that know that there's or was something under the Chicago stockyards. And there was a big hole down there. And there was something in that hole. Yep. 
And yeah, it seemed to have gone away. But it's not like anybody's plugged the hole. Right. I mean, it's it's <laughs> there's still some down there. There's still something down there. Yeah. As far as you know, as far as you know. So it makes me it makes you wonder what else is below my feet. Well, it doesn't make me wonder. Well, I, it, I ma- it makes Doyle wonder yes. what else might be below his feet. Because <laughs> keeper, I know exactly what's down there. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think that what we what listeners missed out on when Doyle first came onto screen was. You were very quickly implicated in uh, a murder immediately. Uh, unfortunately, you got jumped by, you know, your wonderful keeper. You got jumped in the first few sessions uh, by a storyline that got you tagged for a double murder. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting hearing Doyle's back history about being a cop and his father was a police officer and that sort of thing in Chicago to find to see how how closely that parallels with Detective Belmont in the story because Belmont's in the same boat. He served right. in World War One. He left and came back, but instead of becoming a PI, he went and eventually became a detective for the Chicago Police Department. And I, I think what's great is there's there are parallels between those two characters that maybe without the 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 fundamental backstory or because the characters at the time decided not to investigate detective Belmont directly. There, there are some pretty close lines between the two of them. It would have been interesting to see how it played out if Doyle had known more about Belmont at the right. time. And you know, there's still time. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> I don't Belmont think, I don't think detective disappear. Belmont's going away anytime soon. Um, but he has been at the least for as far as the character know, he has been sated for the moment. He, he has his killer. Uh, in the Holden uh, Sun, and as far as you're aware, everything is resolved, and that's kind of nice for you. Yeah. Okay. Uh, anything else you'd like the listeners to know about Mr. Doyle? Uh, you know, I don't. I don't know if there's too much more to say to him. He's not a terribly complicated person. He is not. <laughs> he is not. But that's okay. That's perfectly okay. Uh, because in in reality, in our day-to-day lives, there are people just like Doyle who are not super complex with multiple different levels to them. They're very straightforward people. And I think as this table shows, there are many dynamic people here at the table. And to be fair, the group needs a nice, even, maybe not even kill, maybe even kill is the wrong word, but a, a steady, a constant. Right. Somebody who... A rock. A rock. Right. Yes, at least until... You know, yeah, until I lose my mind, right, and, and then everything is shattered, right. and then no one will have a rock to cling to, and then it'll all spiral out of control. It'll be wonderful. That's the plan. <laughs> well, I thank you for your time, Jake, uh, and then uh, we'll see you on the next recording. All right, thank you. Mm-hmm. All right, so we are going to get on with a uh, the fourth in a series of interviews with the players of the. Uh, Old Days Podcast. So I'm joined this time by James. He is the player for uh, Dr. Tottenbach. Howdy, everybody. And he doesn't even have to do a fancy voice tonight, which is nice. It's actually quite weird to have a microphone in my face and not have Dr. Tottenbach's (laughs) voice. It's actually a little odd. Uh. (laughs) Yeah, no, it should be. It should be a little strange for for everyone, perhaps. Uh, So we want to get to know who Sigmund is behind 
the the screen a little bit. We didn't get the opportunity, as I mentioned with a couple of other folks, we didn't get the opportunity to start recording the game when the game started. So there is some background stuff that we have missed on these characters. Sure, sure. Uh, so could you give me just kind of a basic rundown of, give me a, a finer points, where Sigmund came from and then how he got here. Just some real simple oh, yeah. stuff. No, yeah, not a problem. He, uh, uh, let me see, he was born, uh, he was actually born on June 6th in 1891 in uh, good old Bavaria. He was born in Germany. <laughs> uh, he was born to the Tattenbachs. His his family is actually, um, as as German money goes, is actually quite wealthy. Sure. Uh, his mother and father, both still alive, Ludwig and Emma von Tattenbach. Uh, his first brother, uh, Franz, and second brother, Johann. Uh, Johann was actually, I believe, uh, Franz is deceased. Johann is still alive. Johann's kind of abusive, so they're not very close. Sure. There's been a couple of telegrams, but yeah, they're. Um, but back uh, many years ago, he came to. I'm doing a little. Uh, came to uh, Chicago in 1920, and it was right before that in 19, late 1919. Uh, uh, due to his part in the German Revolution, uh, just right. post World War One, uh, his father basically disowned him, mm-hmm. uh, cut off all funding, all ties. So. so he becomes a revolutionary, and his father says, "Get out!" Absolutely. And absolutely. So he's, he's come to Chicago. He came to Chicago in 1920. We picked the game up in 1923. Uh, what do you think that transition was like for him coming? halfway around the world to a different country uh culture shock uh he he's already reeling because his parents have basically given him the boot uh sure. you know which uh, he did grow up money so uh, you know losing all that wow it's cold out here yeah. <laughs> and uh and uh and on top of that he now he know comes to america and america in the 1920s is uh so unforgivably america it is it is one of the most americas americas yeah. you know if you if you get what i mean i don't know it's quite the term right Un- yeah. unforgivably america it's unforgivably america we have some of that going on now but oh uh, oh I, have, I, I digress but yeah uh Okay, so so it's a pretty big transition for him, right? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, culture shock uh, out the wazoo. He he probably. I imagine uh, Sigmund actually probably spends occasionally and just goes down to the markets and stuff and walks around and just like looks at it because right. it's so different than Germany. You know, this yeah. is it's still kind of a carnival like spectacle to him. Even three years later, it's Chicago. Oh yeah, in the Chicago 20s. in the twenties. So it's it's uh, color and noise. And color and smell. And and <laughs> sure, and then you've got everything going on from. Uh, uh, on Michigan Avenue, yep. you've got yep. all the big buildings, oh, lots of lots constant of constant construction, and yeah, just yep. fantastic new architecture. Chicago, I mean, the whole city itself in the twenties was basically one big World's Fair, so it yeah. was really fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what do you? He's a doctor, so what do you think drives Sigmund to keep working? I mean, we've we've made some intimations through it through game, but. Uh, because we lacked the recording equipment and the, the willpower <laughs> right. for the first few sessions, what we didn't find out about Sigmund, what the listeners don't know about him, is that uh, much of his medical work is done not pro bono, but is done for the the poor. The poor. Uh, he he works a lot in trade. You know, uh, if Mrs. Johansson can't pay her medical bills, then I will accept a pot of dumplings. You know, that's right. or, you know Sigmund will accept you know a, a fresh cut ra- fresh cooked rabbit. Rather than, I mean, because he understands, especially in the 20s, especially right now, he understands that poor people are poor, but they still need medicine. And as a doctor, he he literally gave an oath to help these people. Well, and And, and you leave you you leave Germany in 1920 ish or so. Yeah. So you're beginning to see that the the repercussions of the Versailles Treaty are starting to come in. 
and there's there's going to be a big massive switch here in mm-hmm. German society and so when you come to Chicago oh absolutely uh, and and I'm kind of in a way I mean I'm I'm uh Sigmund is kind of following the boys home if you will yeah. I mean he's there's going to be a lot of medical attention that's needed you know and and so he's uh, and he understands that a lot of soldiers just don't have the don't have the ways and means but yeah. I mean beyond that in his past he actually he uh in 1902 he was only 12 years old but he he lost he, him and his sister were actually out playing on a pond in germany and the ice broke she fell through they both fell through he ended up with a pneumonia almost died and she Mm. did die and he watched it happen so it's a it's very much a um constant coping with her death sure to prevent the deaths of others sure so you're you're, you're transitioning that grief and the and and you're trying to turn it into an engine you can use to to heal other people and it's a way of mourning and exactly exactly you know uh, you you can't forget her if you're helping other people that kind of a thing well and and Mm -hmm. and then the the fallout from her death is uh if memory serves correctly sigmund's largely blamed oh yeah uh sigmund was totally blamed and his father like him and his father never had the same relationship afterwards only only daughter of the family too right only daughter of the family she was the little golden blossom so she passed away uh uh father blamed sigmund just for ever pretty much never right. lets him forget it his older brother is uh his older brother is then killed in the war right. franz is killed in the war jo- johan is a spoiled brat and just spends the money like wine and yet somehow is still okay with the family so sigmund has a lot of family issues <laughs> yeah, i'm saying that i'm saying that so given what sigmund saw in the stockyards especially mm. not only just in the in some of the normal mundane buildings but what he saw in the in the tunnels and in the caves underneath this dugout area mm-hmm. under this under the uh, the stockyards what do you think his perception of reality is right now it is uh to 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 use a phrase from one of my favorite movies it is it has really shaken the pillars of heaven as far as he's concerned <laughs> it is uh it's rocked his reality he doesn't have a lot that he can uh, it, it, he he kind of feels like he he understood the world when it was just chemicals and science and it all made sense but now right. that there's more than that he now feels like there's literally a whole world that he's just having to learn how to walk and feed himself in again right. you know uh, you think it's going to drive him in the future oh absolutely he's he's probably already started to ask uh, miss o'Shea if she's got any old books that she doesn't <laughs> you know or like to borrow from her and she's uh, conveniently left for arkham yeah that's uh, wow it's a mm. necronama something or other I, I gave it a good a good perusal it was actually quite good the cliff notes were fun. <laughs> well, uh, if, if we're picking up after the, the previous episode, the folks who listened to, then they know that Miss O'Shea has actually just returned from Arkham. So she was not there uh, very long, just uh, just a day or so, but uh, it was quite an adventure for her. Mm. Um, mm. So it's it, like we mentioned before, it had been a few years since he's been in Germany. What do you think his perspective is like on the current state in 1923 Germany when he reads when he gets out and reads the paper and reads that uh, France has gone into the Ruhr Valley and they've right. taken control of it and now 
uh, they're talking about instead of because the the German market, the mm-hmm. paper marks are so worthless, yeah. uh, they're going to be begin taking coal. And now there's a general strike from the workers who aren't going to dig any coal, which like, is going to well, unstabilize things even further. Right. Uh, what do you think his perspective is on what's going on in his homeland? Uh, I would I would akin it to Sigmund watching a slow car accident with someone he loves and nothing he could do about it. Right. It's it's literally it's there's there's very. He still very much loves Bavaria. Still much in in many ways. Still loves his family yeah. um, and and the people he grew up with, and he doesn't want to see them harm in any way. Um, so watching watching what's happening to them from the outside mm-hmm. is is it's got to be in a way it's probably fairly heartbreaking for him. You know, yeah. like there's not a lot he can do, and he doesn't really have uh, contact with his family. Maybe one telegram from his mother, a couple from his brother, and that's about it. So. He's yeah. pretty much what he gets in the newspapers is about what he gets. So, yeah, I'm um, scared, scared for his people. Um, Sounds and, like he's got a lot on his mind. Uh, Dr. Tartenbach has a lot on his mind. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so if we dilate out the time stream a little bit and we said to James, James, I'm sure. going to give you and the doctor a year to figure out what his plans are for what we do next. What do you think he would end up doing in that year? Oh, in a in a, in a year? Yeah. Uh, well, he's uh, he's definitely um, he's seen a lot of he's seen a lot of some 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 pretty gnarly things just in this adventure recently. Some some fairly unfortunate things in Chicago that he knows he he, he should be able to help. You know, sure. community work that kind of a thing. I mean, he's a doctor, right? Uh, but I think he's also he he's probably going to start. You know, uh, looking into the darker aspects, some things that are, you know, uh, newspaper newspaper reports that don't quite add up, sure. you know, books that Miss O'Shea leaves around. He's got a lot of question marks that now he doesn't know if they are just question marks sure. or if there's something behind that question mark. Right. And, and that, the, that it, disturbs him to no end. <laughs> and you've got the, um, the scientific doctoral mind, too, uh, which is going to clash with the um, arcane text that... Oh, yeah, a Miss O'Shea might be able to provide you, and yeah, words, words, properly spoken words should not be able to summon things. <laughs> as far as not. the doctor is concerned, that their words are words, but <laughs> he's seen it happen, so he's he he now assumes that uh, much like math or or physics or biology, this is just another set of rules he needs to learn, and so he's he's kind of approaching it as a uh, okay, well, this is just another type of math. This math just you occasionally maybe have to kill a chicken or something. You know, he's not. <laughs> sure how it works but he's just dipping his toes at this yeah. point <laughs> sounds like a great idea right okay uh anything you would like to say to our listeners uh i actually there is something i would like to say um thank you for listening to us um from our humble humble origins here to wherever we end up going to thank sure. you for sticking sticking with us and we um well honestly we'll do our best to provide you with some decent entertainment um just stick with us it only it's going to only get it better from here it will only get better from here i promise yeah. you and okay. i will i will be wearing pants the whole time i swear pants <laughs> plus that's we should, we should start we should have started before the interview but <laughs> thank, i appreciate you joining me james thanks for the time hey thanks for having me here all right and in a final interview uh session uh i have lonnie with me here and we Hello. are we are going to discuss uh lawrence Lawrence. Yes, Lawrence uh, Edward Oliver Forsyth, is it? Yes. He's got such a long, you know, Christian name. It's As as was the tradition. As was the tradition. Okay. 
So we've had a chance throughout the gameplay, uh, listeners have had a chance to get to know who Lawrence a little bit. But since the game started recording a little bit after we actually started playing the game, what can you tell uh, the listeners about Lawrence that maybe they don't know that we covered in the first part? Well, a brief overview on Lawrence, just, just in case everybody hasn't caught on or they're, they're newer players. Lawrence is a 38-year-old man. Mm-hmm. He is from Toledo, Ohio. He went to West Point specifically for the engineering schools and the, the engineering portion of it. And then going into the uh, Corps of Engineers where he was part of the crew of the Panama Canal. Right. So he didn't actually go in and he didn't become a military officer at all because they had different types. Um, yeah. I mean, this was this would have been... 1904 when so he went pre, in 1905. One for sure. Yeah, I mean this would have been the time of what um, the Moro uprising or sure. st- something like that. Yeah, no, no, he wouldn't have gone in for that, and the military wasn't very large at that point, anyways. Right. So he goes in, he graduates from the Corps of Engineers, and then he goes on to his work in the Panama Canal. Yes. What do you think building the Panama Canal? What What do you think that experience was like for him? That had to be a it's it's a very on one hand it's very good because it's an architectural wonder unlike anything that anyone had attempted mm-hmm. it's it, it was a larger project than the pyramids any any of the seven wonders that you can name it's it's simply i mean if you think about just stating what it is, joining two oceans together by digging a trench across a continent. Right, yeah, it's yeah. I think people forget it's very easy to forget in the present day how amazing the Panama Canal is because a for most folks it's not anywhere near them personally and then b and probably more importantly we take it for granted because it is built I mean yeah I mean when I was as when I as a as a player was a young man the only thing the Panama Canal was really famous for was that Carter gave it away right (laughs) well yeah it's U.S. politics but but at the same point in time, I think that's probably true of many wonders of the world, many previous engineering projects. We forget how stunning they were when they first came out because it is something that has already happened. Well, I mean, the Panama Canal, the French had tried twice already to start doing it mm-hmm. and had failed both times miserably. Yeah. It, it, it wasn't until the U.S. government got involved and involved very heavily that it, it even got anywhere to begin with. But... For Lawrence, I mean, he's a white Christian male from Ohio who, although been in the military, probably hasn't been overseas very much, if yes. at all. I think he probably has a very um, 20s American perspective and oh. view on everything. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and I think I think for the most part that shines through when you play them. You, you play him as, um, even some of the reactions you've had with Stasi, you, you play him as almost an overbearing white American. And I think that's really important because uh, they were typical yeah, of I mean, the that, age. I mean, you say overbearing, and to us it's overbearing in our modern sense. But in that sense, it I mean, look at look at the literature of the time. Look at look at the look at the way that things were done. It was simply called the white man's burden. Right. You know? Yeah. Bring bring Christianity to the unwashed masses of whatever color, um, racism, although racism, overt racism was not a thing 
um, for a lot of Northerners. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of unspoken racism and oh, yeah. the entire system implied superiority and. Sure. That that whole system went with the U.S. when they went to the Panama Canal. And so you go down there in the middle of a bunch of people who are not white, who um, maybe maybe Catholic, but mm-hmm. not good God-fearing Methodists. and <laughs> Not not white Catholics by yeah, any means? Yeah, not Protestants. No. Um, and it's a place of savage beauty, great mystery, and it's very dangerous. Yeah, it, it's completely unlike anything probably he had ever seen in his life. So, so speaking of the danger, Lawrence had a very uh, traumatic experience at the at the Panama Canal uh, building. What, what can you tell us about it? Well, as, as you're literally digging a trench across, there's a lot of mud, and that's one thing. But then the other thing is, is that you literally have to blast the walls clear. So there was a lot of dynamite work involved, mm-hmm. and unfortunately. These dynamite explosions, although done by professionals, sometimes had unexpected results. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can imagine why you're. I mean, I mean, there were working a, with dynamite. There were there were a lot of men lost, basically in mudslides. Sure. And and you know they would they would wall up the sides of the canal, but the the mud would just ooze right over it if you didn't do it correctly. So, so what happened to Lawrence? Well, there was a mudslide and he was trapped in it and basically buried. He was dug out, but it was even though the experience wasn't for a very lengthy time. Sure. When you're buried alive it feels like forever. I can I can only imagine. Yeah. yeah. Having never been buried alive, I'm I'm going to hope that that is always the case that I can only yeah. ju- just barely imagine. Yeah, the sheer terror. I mean, we didn't get a chance as uh, as a group and as listeners. The listeners haven't; they don't know that Lawrence has a deep and abiding affection for the game of chess. Uh, yes. Um, so where did that come from? Well, um, it's it's the sport of an educated man. That's that's the first thing. Okay. It is a socially well thought of type of type of uh, gentleman's game, and at this time in in the twenties. There's quite a, I guess you could call it almost a renaissance, hmm. because there is a entirely new school of chess thought coming into the world through players like Nimzovich, Alekin, who is world champion, Casablanca, versus the older and stodgier players of the time, new Imagine concepts, that. new... So, so it's the new school challenging the old then. Exactly. And the new school at this point by, the 19, by 1923 is starting to become ascendant. I see. So it's quite exciting though, because for anyone who follows it, there's so much going on and so much to see and so much to, to hear about. That uh, and there's an explosion of chess clubs across the country. So That's interesting. So <laughs> recently, uh, along with the rest of the investigating crew, Mr. Forsythe dealt with the stockyards. Yes, and the after effects thereof. What What do you believe? Just post stockyards, not with some of our later episodes where you've gone on to assist the uh, situation at the Tribune Tower. We'll leave that kind of package because it's not completely resolved yet. Right. With the aftermath of the stockyards, how do you think that affected or maybe still affects his frame of mind? Well, um, he's fortunate in that he didn't get to see much of the truly unnatural stuff because he was busy running at the uh, more human horrors, shall <laughs> no, we say? Do you think, do you think he, di- he uses that as a pathway to denial? 
Oh, certainly. Okay. Certainly. I mean, the things that the other players um, saw are, quite frankly, mind-bending. Yeah. And he's been unsettled enough just by the texts that have been found, <laughs> yeah. the fragments of what he's read. Mm-hmm. But if you can package that all up as just purely human horror, it, it goes down easier. You know, it's it's much nicer to think of people being bad than unknowable monsters in a cave underneath the city that you're building a tower on. <laughs> sure. And I think there's been a, there's a, there was a thread with the stockyards that a, a lot of the the crew picked up on which is that it's not to say that the monstrous horror that was there was not horrific but the level of human horror that existed and allowed those things to propagate might be just as chilling for those people to interact with oh absolutely i mean i can't even really describe how awful to think about no i mean uh, humans are horrible to each other and Lawrence would know that intimately. Sure. And it's it's much easier to just imagine, well, it's more humans being horrible. and But the fact that it, that they are so horrible and that it's so normal yeah. is horrifying to me. <laughs> well, sure. And I think that's some of the draw of the, of the game is, is getting to judge your character's reaction and then step back and think... This is this is really really horrible. Yeah, I mean, um, so if we took a look at the calendar and said we are going to fast forward a year or more, barring any sort of um, uh, mythical or monstrous or mythos style entanglements, what do you think Lawrence does with his time beyond the Tribune stuff? Um, basically, he tries to put his life back in order. It wasn't so long ago that he was accused of murder. That's true. And although he's back at work and seemingly in the good graces of his employer. Mr. McCormick, sure. He absolutely knows now that that can all be taken away in an instant just for being in the wrong place. Sure. So I think he would try and double down to getting back to a normal life. Um, You know, yes, it's boring to some people on the outside because there's not... I mean, he does have some levels of debauchery. He is a member of the Order of Owls. (laughs) Right. But it's it's a gentleman's debauchery. It's not orgies in the streets. It's not... The end of the world is coming and therefore all sin is, is permissible. It's... Right. You know, just freedom to enjoy yourself without mucking about with terrible rules like prohibition. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately for the current timeline and foreseeable future, prohibition is going to be around for a little while. And yeah. the, I think the the touchstone point for us here who are players in Chicago is that it really does, in so many uh, readable metrics, it really does exacerbate Chicago's crime problem. Oh yeah, and it doesn't help that the the Chicago mayor uh, at the time when the the killings really start, he decides to uh, make sure that the city council doesn't fund the Chicago police reserves. Well, of course. And then you have a whole lot less people who can look out for other. Okay, well that's that's all I've got for you. I appreciate you coming out and letting us uh, talk a little bit and learn, letting the listeners learn a little bit more about Mister Forsyth, and hopefully it gives them uh, some. 
uh, some better sculpted ideas about who he is as a person. I mean, he's just a very boring, he would be a very boring, solid pillar of the community in any other time. Not necessarily pillar because he wouldn't be like a rich banker or a philanthropist or anything like that, but he would just be one of those solid guys in the church that you could count on to show up for the for the charity drive or whatever sure he would just be an ordinary unremarkable to the naked eye person he would be normal until he went through a few really really sinister and somewhat horrifying experiences well yeah i mean there's that right so we'll, we'll get to see more of that turn hopefully shortly but uh i thank you for coming out again i look forward to it thanks mike yep I want to thank each and every one of our guests for this week's interview session. Uh, Our players, Tiffany, Jake, James, Heather, Lonnie, they've all been great. We really, really appreciate them coming out. Hopefully you, the listener, feels like you know the group a little bit better now and maybe have a better insight into their characters. I look forward to you guys hearing the next fresh episode next week uh, at some point. So until then, I am Keeper Michael. Please share, like, subscribe, all the wonderful things you already know what to do. Please uh, get the message out. Let others know about the podcast. We are seeing a, a lot of really great feedback coming in, and uh, we appreciate your ears and your time. So until then, safe travels.